This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Thank you all for coming out. Good showing. Um, we have students um, from a variety of pre-med disciplines, including my own class on uh, medical ethics and some from the biomedical ethics class in philosophy. And um, it's always great to see members of the Santa Barbara community um, attending. So tonight, we're very pleased to bring Dr. Stuart Finder, renowned ethicist and um, director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics at Cedar sinai Medical Center. He's a professor in the Department of Surgery and the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Cedar sinai as well as an adjunct professor in the Department of Medicine at UCLA's Geffen Medical School. <clears throat> um, looking through his very impressive CV, um, I was drawn to the fact that he did his undergraduate work in, um, it says, in uh, both environmental studies and religious studies, although on the way over here he told me it's a little different, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, and he went on to get uh, three advanced degrees in philosophy and is just, uh, you know, way overeducated. Um, I counted uh, 58 publications, so I'm not going to go through them all. Um, a couple caught my eye. I can just mention one recent publication, <clears throat> 2002, uh, Clinical Ethics Consultants and the Necessity of Not Meeting Expectations. I never promised you a rose garden. It's a super interesting paper about six, I guess, understandable, but impossibly demanding expectations uh, we have on clinical ethics consultants. Anyway, so um, we'll do the talk, and I'd like as many of you as possible to stay for the question and answer period afterwards, which is very often <laughs> the best part. Uh, and. Please, uh, you know, feel free to, to, this is your chance to interact with um, a renowned ethicist rather than me. Um, and this evening, he will be discussing grounding ethics in clinical practice, what matters to patients, families, and health providers. Please give a well, warm welcome to Dr. Stuart Finder. Thanks, Greg. And um, just so you know, so my undergraduate degree, I went to a, a liberal arts college where you could pretty much design your own major. So I actually have a BS in God and nature. And I always like the sign of that, BS, God and nature. It's just, it goes together well. So anyways, thank you uh, very much for that kind introduction. Thanks to the CAP Center um, for the work that you do in general. Um, having created this forum, I think, is a, in particular, is a great thing. Having the space for students and faculty and community members to actually engage in conversation about challenging issues that face all of us uh, is, is something to really be applauded and not to be taken for granted, especially in our current time where there's so much divisiveness and, and people don't figure out how to talk to one another. So I'm really, I'm really grateful to be able to participate in this program uh, with you. And uh, especially then, thank you, Greg and Greg and Dusty for um, your assistance in you know, bringing me here and, and coordinating all of this. Um, and to be part of the other speakers that you've had over the years, it really is an honor. So thank you all very much. Now, with all of that said, uh, I have to make 
a kind of confession. Here's a caveat. I am a PhD philosopher, and um, by training, I, as, as you heard, I have two degrees in uh, philosophy at the master's level as well as a PhD, and I engage in all the various kinds of academic things that PhDs do. But in the 30-plus years that I have uh, been working, I have not grounded myself in academia. I have purposely put myself in the halls of the hospital. And the reason is that, as I hope to show you in what follows, if you want to know what actually matters to people, if you want to come face-to-face with what really counts in life, unmasked and unadorned by all those things that people create images and pretenses with, go into a hospital where people are sick, are injured, and confront the realities of what it is to be one of these weird things that we all are, which is human being, embodied, embodied, very strange. And yet we always are thinking of ourselves beyond the fact that we are bodies, beyond the fact that we seem to be ending at the surface of our skin. That's a weird thing that we are. And that's what I really want to help you to see as significant for understanding ethics. And so I must begin with a story. It's a story that begins in some ways in the emergency department of a major academic medical center. My slide didn't work so well, I apologize. Um, Although it didn't really begin there, uh, it's just when we typically tell these kind of stories, we'll say, well, it began in the emergency department, even though it actually started somewhere else. It's just our point of contact is in the physical medical environment. Of course, in that environment, that's where you start to find out where the story began. And this is how this story began. It concerns a woman who was coming to the end of her work day. Um, she'd been up on her feet all day, as you can see from this picture. She worked at a restaurant in the kitchen. And it's hard and busy work. And like most days, it's the end of the shift. As it approached, uh, folks are generally looking to get done and off of their feet. And for this woman, let's just call her Mrs. H, this was particularly so because she was 13 weeks pregnant. And she hadn't been feeling her best lately. Indeed, towards the end of her shift, she suddenly felt a bit lightheaded, and so she took a quick sit-down. And then when she stood up, she felt a rush of something warm going down her legs. Now, as a woman with a three-year-old at home, she knew that when you're pregnant, sometimes bladder control isn't so great, although typically that's when you're much further along in your pregnancy, not at 13 weeks. So in that moment, as she felt her legs getting damp, she became panicked. She felt a bit of a knot in her abdomen, appropriately so. Luckily, her crew in the restaurant was a tight one, and as Mrs. H was beset with panic, her colleagues saw that something was wrong. They asked her what was going on. She, she told them, and without hesitation, one of her friends guided her to the bathroom just in case she actually had just beat herself. Kind of an embarrassing thing. When Mrs. H checked, however, It didn't smell like pee. Her colleagues went and told the kitchen manager, who then told Mrs. H to get herself to the emergency room, quick. And so it was only a five-minute Uber ride away. She got in the car. She went. 
And in the ED, things went like things go in the ED. You're seen by a triage nurse. You talk to some intake person who gets your insurance information, and then you wait. Besides the anxiety of not knowing what was going on, actually, there was nothing else for Mrs. H at that moment. She wasn't really in distress except in the unknowing. About four hours later, when she finally was seen, Mrs. H told the ED physician that because she was wearing dark uh, underwear and dark pants, she hadn't really been able to tell the color, if any, of what had come out of her and gone down her leg. She also reported that since then, she had been having some further but slight leakage of fluid. She also told the doctor that she had had some mild abdominal cramping. She denied any recent fever or chills, no history of vaginal discharge, no more lightheadedness or dizziness, no palpitations, no diarrhea, vomiting, chest pain, shortness of breath, or any other symptom. She did, of course, have intermittent nausea, but that wasn't out of the ordinary. She was, after all, 13 weeks pregnant. Because of the concern was that she may have ruptured her membranes and lost amniotic fluid, an ultrasound was done. Now, for someone who's 13 weeks pregnant, the ultrasound should look something like this. All that black above the fetus represents amniotic fluid, and that would be good. Unfortunately, Mrs. H ultrasound looked more like this. There was significantly less amniotic fluid than there should have been. In fact, based on normal averages and interpretations of the ultrasound, it was suspected that she had lost over 50% of her amniotic fluid. At 13 weeks pregnancy, the loss of that much fluid was a bad sign. In fact, it's typically understood as a devastating sign. Fetal development will not progress normally. In fact, there's an extremely high likelihood that this fetus will die long before term. In addition, with PPROM, that's preterm premature rupture of membranes, there's a significantly increased risk of developing an infection of the remaining amniotic fluid and the membranes of the sac, the fetal sac, since there's now an opening to the outside world. And with such an infection, because it can be easily absorbed by all that blood vessel-rich vessel tissue of the uterus, it can quickly go from local to systemic, and she can become what's known as septic. And if she becomes septic, Mrs. H could die. Sepsis and then death in the setting of PPROM is not one of those super rare, one in a million kinds of things. It's something that really can happen. In fact, a recent study just from this past October uh, concluded that the risk is about one in 2,200. So accordingly, given how early she was in her pregnancy, the amount of amniotic fluid loss, and the risk of complications that she faced, the recommendation from the obstetric physician who was now involved was that Mrs. H should terminate this pregnancy. That is, she should have an abortion. Now, I'm imagining that some of you, having heard me just say the word abortion, and aware of the fact that I'm giving a talk as part of the CAP Forum on Ethics and public policy, are thinking about the fact that we're now living in the post-Dobbs world in which if we were in Texas or South Dakota, Louisiana, West Virginia, Idaho, Missouri, there's a number of states, there might be real question about whether the physicians taking care of Mrs. H would be able to actually recommend an abortion. 
you might be further thinking, ah, this is where Finder's going to shift from his story about what are real issues about the, to, to talk about what are real issues about the status of pregnancy, the status of fetuses, women's rights, and who knows what sort of horrors might come back if back alley abortions become once again prevalent in the United States. As I said, these are real issues, and they deserve serious attention. But I want to remind you, my concern and what I'm wor- working to bring into focus for you today is ethics as clinically understood, which is different from ethics as politically or conceptually understood. So while I agree that there's a lot that we can talk about in terms of women's bodies being objectified and utilized for the sake of pursuing all sorts of social, political, conceptual arguments, for my purposes here today, I want us to pull back from those big picture issues and instead recall that there in the ED is Mrs. H., who's now been told that at 13 weeks pregnant, her membranes have ruptured, she's lost a significant amount of amniotic fluid, and at this point, terminating the pregnancy is indicated because this fetus won't survive. And in fact, Mrs. H. could actually die if she doesn't do anything. What does one think about sitting there in the ED given such information? How does one wrap their head around this? Anyone who's out there, you, who's been pregnant or know someone who's been pregnant, maybe you start to get an idea. Like, what do you think about? I mean, maybe she's thinking about how she's going to tell her husband because he's out of town and he doesn't know yet that she's in the ED and this has happened. Or maybe... She's thinking about how she wishes her mom was in the chair beside her, not because her mom can undo any of this, but it doesn't matter how old you are. Having your mom there and to be able to hold her hand sometimes is necessary. Or maybe she's thinking about that baby. She's already missing that baby that is not going to be. The baby she imagined back when she and her husband learned that they were pregnant with their second child. Or maybe she's having the kind of thoughts that a lot of women have after they lose a pregnancy, that maybe there's something wrong with her, that she as a woman is somehow defective, that she's not as desirable. It's hard to know. I'm not really sure what she was thinking or feeling or experiencing in those moments after which the world in which she had lived her day up until that moment was suddenly, radically, irreversibly changed. But I do know this. She was thinking something. She was reflecting on this pregnancy and what was happening and what was next because this pregnancy, the fetus that was inside her who was likely to be no more, it wasn't hers. She was only the vessel, the surrogate for another couple who couldn't carry their own pregnancy. And that's why the OB resident called me, because the team was trying to figure out how to continue the conversation with Mrs. H., who, once told of the recommendation, said she couldn't decide by herself. She couldn't decide for herself. She needed input from the surrogate parents, the one whose fetus she was carrying. So while it was her life that was now at risk, she would not make a decision about what to do without their having a say in the matter, because it was their fetus. It was their imagined baby. 
It was their imagined family of the future. Now, I know that there's this artwork up on the screen, but I hope in your mind's eye you're getting a clear picture of the situation. And I now want to use what you're seeing, what you're imagining, and shift gears just a bit and turn our attention to what might be the frame, so to speak, for what you're picturing, the frame that is the clinical context. Now, when I say clinical context, most of you are likely thinking about something like depicted, what's depicted here in the Van Gogh painting. That is a place, a physical space, in which patients and physicians and nurses are found. I mean, that's usually what people mean when they say clinical context, the place. But that's not what I have in mind here. That's not what I mean. Instead, I want to focus on what is it within any given clinical place or space that actually makes it a clinical one. Now, for sure, a central hallmark of a clinical context is that there is a patient, a person suffering from some sort of illness or injury or syndrome and who is in need of medical attention. There's also the medical professionals, typically physicians, who have primary responsibility for figuring out what's going on, crafting a plan of care, and then overseeing the implementation of that plan of care. Of course, the implementation itself can't be done without nurses and other professional care providers upon whom physicians depend for the day-to-day care of the patient. And in that same regard, the physicians, the nurses, the physical therapists, the x-ray technicians, and all those other care providers themselves depend further on further ancillary workers. Everyone from the environmental service worker who cleans the floor, the cafeteria worker who makes the food, the plumbers, the carpenters, the engineers, and all those people that keep the physical plant functioning, functioning as designed, all of which highlights that there's an institutional structure to healthcare, and hence there's also all those people that help run the institution, administrators, finance people, HR specialists, and all of those people. And if these are all the people on the institution side of things, with patients almost always come family and friends. And all of these people are what make up the clinical world people who are in relation with one another, connected to each other, many directly, but others indirectly. But these relationships, even if depicted in this picture here as equivalent and fixed and stable, are far from that. After all, while there is but one patient in this picture, for all these groups, and they are just that groups, Over time, and as the patient's condition changes and new people become involved and others finish their work, the relationships relationships shift and morph and adjust depending on just who is it that's there today, who's present, and then the shift changes, and they morph again because now it's tomorrow and things are different. The, The relationships are different. The dynamic of the relations are different. And that's what a clinical context looks like. Which is to say, a clinical context is one defined by, shaped by, and reflective of the complexity of ongoing and dynamic relationships of many different people occupying many different roles, all of which in one way or another ultimately revolve around a patient in need. But this is just one aspect of the clinical. Another major and significant feature is that clinical contexts are framed and entail 
by a multiplicity of embedded values. And here, I have to pause for just a moment because while it's generally safe to assume that the language one is using, like me speaking right now to you, is generally understood, when you start talking about values, that's not always the case. After all, when I say or you read up on the screen values, we can't be so sure that we're all actually thinking about the same thing. For instance, some of us may be thinking about value as a kind of thing, such as doctrine or theory, policy, belief, judgment, or standards. And these are all different, and they carry different implications depending on their status, authority, breadth, and whatnot. And not only that, but even after much debate, if we all came to an agreement that when push comes to shove, The thing that value is or references is religious doctrine. Well, forgetting for the moment that there are a lot of different religions with some very different doctrines, much more significant is the fact that the status and authority of such doctrine within the context of any given religious tradition versus any other religious tradition varies significantly. So even if we all agree value is or references a thing, we still are already beginning with a multiplicity. But we don't all agree, actually, that we should be thinking about value in terms of thingness. For some of us, we're thinking about value as a kind of action, such as assessment or prioritization, which is quite different actions than choosing. An action is not a thing, which is why we all know that nouns are not verbs, even though sometimes people talk as if nouns are verbs, which is very confusing. And then, of course, there's the idea of value as a frame, by which I mean orientation or commitment or discipline, and hence the idea that value references the way in which we approach things or approach actions and thus direct ourselves or are directed towards the world and our response to it. Now, my point in noting these three different ways of understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about value is not to say that these are the only three ways to think about value. It's just to note that in any discussion of value, there's already a multiplicity of meaning present. And I haven't even mentioned anything about the content. I'm just talking about what the word value strikes us as addressing. So now, let's turn to what sort of values are found in, and really what's the source of values found in the clinical context. And here we have to begin with all those professional roles that I've already mentioned earlier that are specific to taking care of patients. The role of physicians, nurses, clinical social workers, occupational therapists, ultrasonographers, the list goes on and on. Each of these roles with their given traditions, educational requirements, scopes of practice, responsibilities, and so forth, present different perspectives about what is good, what is right, what is fair, what is required, what is forbidden, what is wrong, what is mistaken, etc. That said, the actual institutional location in which clinical care is provided also carries with it a sense of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, what is to be pursued, what is to be avoided, 
And what's funny is that institutions and roles are themselves connected, such that a physician who practices, I don't know, let's say here in Santa Barbara at Cottage, will practice slightly differently than that same physician will practice after completing their residency at Cottage when they come to Cedars-Sinai for their fellowship. Indeed, while in their fellowship at Cedars-Sinai, what they do, how they behave, what they hold up as the norm at Cedars-Sinai might not fit when they do a rotation at Kaiser Permanente LA Medical Center, which is only about five miles away. Let alone when they're finished their fellowship, they get a job and they end up in the Bay Area at UCSF. So there's the role, there's the institution, and there's the interaction of role and institution. Right there we have three sources of value. But we're only getting started here because institutions and healthcare professionals are not immune from the cultural milieu in which healthcare takes place and is and practices are engaged. That's why healthcare in the United States and healthcare in Canada or in England or Japan or India or Germany or Taiwan, they differ even when the physicians have all trained in similar, if not the same programs in the same schools in the same institutions. And let's be honest here. Economics has a lot to do with this as well, as different reimbursement systems and different conceptions of the goals and processes of commodification and wealth management or capital assessment influence and shape as well as reflect what kind of actions are legitimate for physicians to engage in, what kind of actions hospitals should not engage in because they won't get reimbursed. Starting to see some of the multiplicity here? Of course, there's more. After all, local communities also come into play, and these can be fairly fine grain, which is why Cedar sinai and UCLA, which are only about five miles apart from one another in West Los Angeles, take care of actually different groups of people because that five miles could be the Grand Canyon, and hence it influences how the institution functions because who you're taking care of is different. In fact, who works at your institution sometimes reflects who you're taking care of. And so once again, those fine-grained community issues start to affect how things are done in actual practice. And don't forget that diversity of religious tradition that I've already mentioned. And I was only using it as an example, but remember, most people talk about values in terms of religious language, because that's the language that we're most used to in talking about our beliefs and our commitments and our deepest held concerns. And despite what polls may say about religious, religious practice in the United States, it's absolutely the case that religious beliefs are deeply embedded in our culture. And in many cultures, some of them explicitly so. We know that, right? Israel's a Jewish state. Iran's an Islamic state. India's a Hindu state. Argentina's a Catholic state. We also have a deep religious tradition, even if we don't all participate. And if that wasn't enough, if this isn't enough, there in the center is the individual, each of us with our own particular personal narratives, our own way of living and seeing the world shaped by our particular upbringing, families, experiences, limitations, and dreams. I, for example, am and always have been and always will be the third and youngest son of my parents. 
And while I'm blessed to have them both still alive and healthy at 93 years old, even when both are dead, and even if or when either or both of my older brothers are dead and I'm still alive, I'm still the third son of my parents, the one who grew up in Pittsburgh in the house my parents built in 1967, only the third house on the street, which wasn't even paved when we moved in in 1968. And I'm a husband. That's why I wear a ring. I'm a father, a grandfather, a friend, a Jew, mostly vegetarian, an affectionado of the Grateful Dead, and a contemplator. That's at least what my grandfather told me when I was five. And it's not as if when I put on my professional hat, as it were, I step out of my home and into the workplace and all those things disappear. I don't take it off. They're not stored in some secret closet somewhere. I carry them with me. And you carry all of those things about you with you wherever you are. We all bring ourselves with us. Kind of funny thing to say, but then again, speaking the obvious sometimes is kind of funny in an odd sort of way. The point is this multiplicity of values is to be found everywhere and in everyone, which means all those physicians and nurses and x-ray technicians and phlebotomists and all who provide patient care or support those who provide patient care carry with them their own multiplicity of values, as do patients and their families and their friends. And this is another one of the hallmarks of the clinical context. Because while we may be able to separate and segregate ourselves in other facets of our lives, in the clinical world, that multiplicity is present. It's embedded in the very fabric of the clinic. And as a result, there's something else to note. Clinical contexts are also partially defined by uncertainty, and not any kind of uncertainty, but the most challenging kind of uncertainty, the one that is ongoing, in part because of two really basic elements. First, while we tend to think of the medical fact as something that is given in the way that physical facts are given, immutable, not open to interpretation, in reality, medicine is deeply interpretive especially when illness or injury is complex and patients' conditions change over time in the face of treatment or even in the face of new medical problems. Analogously, patients' ability to know and articulate what for them is acceptable. For instance, what sort of outcome, at minimum, must be achieved for life to be worthwhile? And how much burden must one be, is one willing to undergo in an effort to achieve that minimal acceptable outcome? And what sort of likelihood of success must there be to justify such undergoing? These things are not a one-and-done, set-in-stone, immutable, singularly defined matter. Life is all about shifting, moving, responding to what comes next. And so as conditions change, options change, risks change, what counts as worthwhile may also change meaning at any given moment, it might not be exactly clear what to do. That's clinical life. And all of this decision-making and choosing requires a lot of trust. In fact, it demands trust. But most of the time, those people with whom we're interacting are strangers to us, not folks with whom we have deep and long-established relationships and understandings and shared experiences. 
Indeed, we might hold on to that image of our physician as someone who's known and taken care of us our entire lives. In fact, they knew and took care of our parents before us their entire lives. And they take care of our children, too, their entire lives. Like there's this mythic image of the physician who knows everything about us. But the truth is, that's not what we actually experience in a hospital. It's different than that. Because for many decades now, hospitals have been institutional and bureaucratic and anonymous. And we see whomever it is that we're assigned to see, especially in the now hospital world in which, yes, we do meet individuals who we may see over some period of time, but those physicians are mostly part of large groups in which whoever happens to be on is who we get to see especially, again, in the hospital, where it's hospitalists that take care of us, not even the physicians that we see in the clinic in their office. Moreover, many hospitals, like mine, like Cottage, like the UCs, many of the Kaisers, they're teaching hospitals, which means even if this is the physician who you have some long-established relationship with, they're trailed by a pack of trainees, medical students, residents, fellows, who come and go depending on the day, the week, the month, and they're all strangers to the patient, likely never to be seen again. And so it's within the confines of an ever-changing web of relationships in which there are diverse and shifting values and ongoing uncertainty that everyone also is focused on trust that we then have to figure out, so what makes the most sense? And sense-making itself means taking into consideration all of those dynamics and complexities that actually are shifting. What actually does make the most sense for that patient who is at the center of this concern. This is what we mean by the context being clinical. But there's more. Because as complex and dynamics as this may be, there are additional factors at play and at stake. After all, in the clinical context, what makes sense is first and foremost rooted in the facet of patients being embodied things, meaning the starting point for whatever makes sense is that there has to be some sort of biophysical grounding. If not, whatever the problem, it's not medical. Now, for sure, there have been efforts to argue that the foundations of medicine should not be seen as essentially biophysical. If you're looking for something really engaging to read, or depending on how you are, to put you to sleep, check out, go to the UCSB library, check out this book, Medard Boss. He's a psychiatrist and a philosopher who came of age in the 1920s, um, who was encouraged by Heidegger's Oncology and Binswager's Existential Psychology, and he makes a really persuasive argument for a primarily existential, not biophysical foundation of medicine. Similarly, take a look at this book by Pellegrino and Tomasma, which seeks to move medicine out from an essential biophysical model. But Pellegrino and Tomasma, just like Boss before them, still acknowledge that there is a kind of primacy to the body, which makes sense because whatever else we are, we are embodied things. And something about that is inescapable, and we have to address it. And if you think about it, The incredible growth we've seen in medical technology over the past 50 or 60 years has been driven by finding better and more effective ways to support injured and dysfunctional bodies. 
ICU medicine is all about that. There are, of course, some interesting fallouts from all of this technological development in which bodies afflicted by illness or injury that once were unsalvageable can now be pulled back from the brink, so to speak, sometimes even return to their pre-morbid states. As a result, the line between when a body is coming to an end and hence a person is dying is now not as clear as it used to be. And that blurring of the line leads many of us to focus more attention on the machine as a substitute for the body, and hence to think of ourselves more machine-like, and hence not to address the experience of us being injured, of being injured, of Ill, illness, and then what makes sense in the face of that. And this itself can create even further blurring, this time between hope and expectations, because we have faith in the technology, which is borne out continuously. Broken bodies become whole again, reinforcing the primacy of the body as the focus of medical intervention. Unless you think I'm being a little overdramatic here, by drawing attention to this seemingly uh, ongoing focus to ICU-level technology, how about the explosive growth over the same 50 to 60 years in which pills or injections or infusions can be used to overcome infection, cancer, seasonal allergies, you name it. And if not overcome, we can at least mitigate the impact of disease on our bodies through the use of chronic medication. Our bodies and ourselves are radically different now than they were 100 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago. And speaking of bodies and how we understand them, it wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to see inside the body, you had to cut it open. But here's another thing about technology. We now have ways in which we can, quote, see inside a body without having to scratch it at all. Hence getting a deeper appreciation of how the body works and hence how to respond to it when it's not working. And this itself has led not merely to imagining how we might replace certain parts of the body, but actually developing and utilizing these replacement parts for the body. Artificial hearts, artificial kidneys, artificial liver. These are realities. Technology that augments, adjusts, repairs, and even replaces parts of the body is thus another feature enmeshed in what we mean by clinical contexts. Another facet of the clinical context is the real and ongoing tension between the fact that, as I've already mentioned, healthcare is provided by teams of people working together, and yet, as we all know, there are also hierarchies among healthcare providers. Many vestiges of traditional educational, gender, and other power based means for establishing authority, which is not about sharing responsibility horizontally. This tension, while not unique to clinical context, is still deeply infused in it. As is a fairly odd sense of time. Because while we typically live our lives with a really robust sense of the past, the present, and the future, in the clinical context, it's the present that stands out as foremost. Because while knowing the history of what led to hospitalization and what led to illness is important for figuring out what to do, what's even more important is knowing what is going on now, because I have to be responsive to what's now, in this moment, at this point, which, as I've already mentioned, is changing and dynamic. 
which is to say now at T1 will be surpassed by the now of T2, which will be surpassed by the now of T3, and whatever T it is, it's now that demands attention. Taking care of patients is, in other words, an engagement of living in the ongoing present. We don't live much of our lives actually in the ongoing present. We are able to escape by thinking about the past, imagining the future. But in the care of a patient, you must be focused on that ongoing now. Because if you're not, you can make an error. And these are errors that have consequences, catastrophic consequences. Literally, lives hang in the balance. So doing what makes sense is no easy feat. It's complicated because the content is no simple picture. It's one defined by complexity, ongoing change, and uncertainty in which trust is demanded and power and authority intermingle with teamwork, and time is always of the essence, and error represents catastrophe. And despite the best of technologies, we're still confronted by the limitations of actual human bodies. And all of that is framed by unfolding and diverse values. And it's within that swirl that what matters comes to make sense. Let me give you another example. This one started on a glorious summer day when especially if you're a kid, all you want to do, all you really can do, is play. And in this case, that meant enjoying whatever games invented as part of playing in the backyard pool. The thing is, as we all might remember from when we were kids, When you're playing and inventing and enjoying, your attention isn't as great as when you're not. And so the boys didn't hear when their little brother got in the pool too. Nor did they hear as he got deeper in and then in in over his head and then started to flail because at three years old, he didn't remember that all you had to do was hold your breath, kick a little bit, go towards the side. And so they didn't hear as he headed towards the bottom of the pool. Until, of course, he was already there, sunk down, deep. From the reports gathered by the EMTs, that's when they started to scream. And that's when their mother, hearing the screaming, came running and pulled her baby out of the deep end, yelling for the oldest to call 911 while she began to try CPR on her baby. When little Theo arrived at the hospital, he was quickly intubated and started on all sort of medications to get his heart back working, his body stabilized, and hopefully his brain protected. It was unclear how long he'd been down, and so it was unclear how much time had elapsed since he had last breathed and sent oxygen to his brain. And hence, it was unclear how much damage his brain had undergone due to lack of oxygen. But he was only three And bodies, especially bodies of small children who are still developing and growing, can sometimes withstand the most egregious of insults. So while expectations were low, there was legitimately some hope. That's why two weeks after admission, little Theo was traked. Because if there was to be any recovery, it was going to take a long time. A very long time. Over the next four months... There was a little, but very minimal, improvement. Theo was able to breathe on his own. He didn't need the ventilator anymore, and his heart rate stabilized. But that was it. He couldn't swallow, couldn't protect his airway, so he remained traked. 
because he had to prevent the saliva and other normal secretions from rolling back down his throat and going into his lungs. He couldn't eat, so a feeding tube was surgically implanted directly in his stomach. He didn't make any purposeful movement. He didn't visually track, didn't open his eyes. Repeated CT scans actually were interpreted as showing moderate cerebellar and cerebral volume loss. His body was basically functioning at the most minimal level. His breathing was sometimes as slow as six breaths per minute, but mostly in the 10 to 15 range. And just to give you context for those that don't know, normal respiratory rate for a three-year-old is in the upper 20s or 30 breaths per minute. As a result, he was just sort of there. He was in deep coma. Now, I tell you all of this as the background because I got a call to come join a meeting that was going to be a meeting for the team only. Theo's family was not going to be there. And they, the team, thought it might be useful to have me there. The focus of the meeting was that Theo's parents wanted to pursue hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which involves breathing pure oxygen in a pressurized environment, typically a chamber such as this. If you've uh, not ever heard about this, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is a well-established treatment for decompression sickness, which is commonly referred to as the BENS, uh, which is potential uh, risk of scuba diving if you come up too quick. It's also sometimes used to help with serious wound healing or to assist with fighting infections or carbon monoxide poisoning, Um, anemia, gangrene. Uh, it, It can be used for radiation injuries. It's also sometimes used for traumatic brain injury. But it's not used for anoxic brain injury, and that's the name of the injury that Theo had. Anoxic meaning deprivation of oxygen to the brain. But Theo's parents were desperate to try anything that might heal their child, their baby. The one who, through no fault of his own, wandered into the pool and literally got in over his head. That all said, the hospital actually didn't have this kind of chamber. And besides, Theo was now stable in his deep coma state. So he was ready for discharge. So this is what I was learning as I'm sitting in the meeting. They're going through all of this. And as I'm sitting there with the team, I have to admit, I was a bit perplexed as to why they want me there. They didn't appear to be any real issues or stakes other than the parents hoping that some technology that's available but not medically indicated, might help their child. But we weren't offering it. And the team actually knew that the family wanted this, but we couldn't offer it. So what's the deal? Now, trying to make sense of what was being discussed, I asked some questions like, was there a risk to Theo if his parents pursued this hyperbaric oxygen therapy, to which the answer was, well, from a physiologic perspective, absolutely not. It won't help. It won't hurt. However, because of the way the hyperbaric chamber works, in which pressure is increased two to three times that of normal air pressure, that's a way to get more oxygen absorbed into the lungs, that extra pressure, given how low his breathing rate was, could actually cause him to stop breathing, at which point he would die. Got it. So as before, I start to think, ah, they probably now need to, have you told the family this? They already start to tell me, but we've already told the family this. And in fact, right after this meeting, we're going to tell them this again. 
And by the way, thanks, this has been a great meeting, and then it was over. Now, maybe like you hearing me tell you this, I'm sitting there and I'm kind of confused. Like, so why did you ask me to come to this meeting? So I'm standing up being kind of confused, and then the ICU physician who was there, the pediatric ICU physician who had participated in this meeting because she had had developed a good relationship with the parents during uh, Theo's long stay in the ICU. And even though he wasn't in the ICU anymore, she still came to some of these meetings. um, And if she could, she wanted to be able to help the, the now current pediatric team interact with Theo's parents. She motioned to me, come over here, come out in the hallway. Let's go down there a little, away from everyone else. And apologizing for the obscurity within this just-ended discussion, she told me what everyone else in the room knew, or at least she thinks everyone else in the room knew, which is that the owners of the hyperbaric clinic had told the parents that they wanted Theo to be back on the ventilator so that when he was in the chamber, they could manage his breathing and hence ensure that he wouldn't go into respiratory arrest. But this actually represented a practical problem because Theo didn't need to be on a ventilator at this point. Although his respiratory rate was low, it was sufficient to support the minimal ventilatory needs of his minimally functioning body. Accordingly, in order to satisfy the hyperbaric clinic's demands, Theo would need to be discharged home on a ventilator, which meant first putting him back on a ventilator in the hospital, which itself would mean being transferred from the floor back to the ICU, put on the ventilator, then transferred, once he's in the ICU, from a regular ventilator to a home ventilator, teaching his parents how to use the home ventilator, and then discharging him home. Another couple weeks in the hospital for something that is not medically indicated. And having told me that, then here's the kicker. The intensivist, the one who could order that Theo be put back on the ventilator and coordinate this entire dance, she wanted to know, can we do that? He doesn't need to be on the ventilator. He doesn't actually qualify medically for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But in telling this to me, what she really was telling me was this. Given how devastating Theo's injury is and hence how devastating a blow this was to his family, is it okay maybe to bend the rules just a bit, fabricate a reason for restarting him on a ventilator so that we might actually help this family who is now in what's going to be a lifelong trauma? Can we do that? Should we do that? And then I understood why I'd been asked to come to the meeting as we stood in the hallway away from everyone else after the meeting was over. There wasn't just the specific question about Theo and fabricating reasons for restarting the ventilator. There was an even more basic question. How do you ask a question that even if it spoke, even as it's spoken aloud, the implications of it are so problematic that maybe you shouldn't ask it at all, even though you're thinking it, and maybe others are thinking it as well? How do you ask what seems to be unaskable? Or said another way, how do you speak what seems to be unspeakable? And it's not just Theo's situation. It's not just Mrs. H's situation. I've encountered this many times, like a son wondering if it might be better for his mother to be dead 
as opposed to go through one more round of chemotherapy. Or conversely, a mother asking, can't we just stop doing this to her son? To speak such things, maybe even to think such things, does not fit with how we typically understand what mothers and sons are to be and do for each other. To say it plainly, and without trying to sound flippant, it's not normal. The clinical context, which grounds any cogent sense of ethics, however, is that kind of context in which such thinking and speaking are normal. Ethics in the clinical context thus must be responsive to what actually occurs, to what people actually experience in the midst of facing illness, in the efforts to ameliorate such illness or injury, in the encounter with whatever meaning meaning is unfolding as it unfolds in the aftermath that only becomes real when it becomes real. That's what paying attention to ethics in the clinical context entails. So while these are the sorts of things that people think about when they think about ethics in healthcare, I'm suggesting that you need to erase that from your thought. If you're actually interested in ethics as it is experienced. After all, while these make good theoretical frames for academic clarity, clinically, they don't reflect or capture what moral experience presents in that context. You don't know what's at stake until you're there, discovering what's actually going on, which means asking questions, and equally importantly, listening carefully with intention and purpose to whatever is said or arises, including your own thoughts, your own words. As a kind of methodological point then, questioning and engaging with others is key, as is being aware of your own commitments and biases, beliefs and values, preferences and stakes, which requires that each of us be willing to critically self-reflect on what shapes our outlooks, what drives or motivates our choices, what in short matters to us, not just as an idea, but as action, in experience, as experience unfurls ourselves in it. And this itself demands a kind of embraced curiosity in which to be open to the possibility of others' perspectives, others' values, and others' commitments towards and about what they think matters and what we think matters with them. And being willing to set aside then our own preliminary views, bracket them, as it were, to see what else there is, what else is present in the confines of its presentation. It's about asking what might seem like obvious questions, but doing so not for the sake of challenging or doubting, but for discovering what I myself and those others with whom I'm engaged might be thinking, might hold as crucial, might be unwilling to give up, maybe even are unsure if they can even speak it aloud. It is, in short, to be responsively responsive to be responsive to what is present in a manner that takes into consideration the myriad of different values and commitments, including my own. To be responsible, in other words, for what I bring into the situation, but also for what I find to be already there. 
And this urge towards responsibility, I suggest, is the final ingredient of the clinical context. It's what drives action forward. It's what we all bring into the situation, even when we're the patient, looking to others for help, because the responsibility in which I engage is shared across individuals, across institutions, across families. It's what binds us one to the other, and hence what grounds us, what grounds any cogent sense of ethics. Paying attention to what matters demands this kind of responsiveness to surrender ourselves in moments to what is presented in order to catch and hold and respond in ways that allows each of us, with and for the other and ourselves, to discover now in this unfolding present that is the clinical moment what will continue to matter as we all move forward. And with that... I want to thank you for your uh, graciousness in listening this afternoon. And I again want to thank the CAP Center for their kind invitation. I hope I've given you maybe just a little something to think about. And very happy uh, to entertain questions, comments, thoughts, disagreements, whatever it is that you would like to pursue. Um, So again, thank you very much. Is this working? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, we'd now like to go to questions and, uh, and answers. Um, please uh, don't feel shy to ask your question. We have a couple of rules. Um, we want to hear from members of the community, but I'd like to start at least with some of the younger uh, uh, students. Um, and uh, you need to take the microphone when you're asking a question as this is being recorded. And the other rule is that your question should have a question mark on the end rather than a personal statement. Um, And also, I guess lastly, please keep your questions mercifully short (laughs) because other people want to ask questions too. So having said that, who would like to ask a question? Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Hi, uh, my name is Simran. Um, I have a, I'm majoring in aquatic biology and like thinking of minoring in religious studies. So I think it's really cool that you kind of have a similar background. But my question is, how did you go from, I mean, knowing your major, but how did you go from med school to kind of thinking, you know, ethics is more where you want to focus? Um, so completely by accident. So this is one of the things that's really important, I think, for all of the students to remember. All of us old folks actually know this and try to hopefully remember it. Um, Life is actually all about accidents. Um, I did not set out to do this. I actually set out to be a PhD philosopher working in a, you know, an undergraduate type liberal arts environment. That's what I thought I would do. But I got very interested in the in the way in which um, ethics and worldview and language sort of overlap. And uh, I went to a, for my second master's after, since my undergraduate major was God and nature, which is, you know, kind of all over the place. Um, I did my first master's in general philosophy. I went for my second master's in philosophy of language. 
The school I went to didn't really like my ideas, and what I learned is you've got to find a place that actually will support you and your ideas. So I went to a, then get my Ph.D. at, at a different institution, and, what, and when I was looking for that institution, it was the University of Utah, I thought, well, I should go check before I decide I want to go there. You know, it's always a good idea. And I went, and there was a person who um, my advisor at the University of Wisconsin, where I was, knew the person at the University of Utah, I went to go talk with them. I gave them my spiel about I got this big grand idea. And they said, that's way too much. That's like a lifetime's of work. Have you ever thought of narrowing the focus? Okay, well, what? And so well, tell me about yourself. I told them about myself. I said, well, it turns out my dad's a surgeon. My oldest brother is an emergency room physician. She said, have you ever thought about language in the medical context and how that might affect how people's worldview works? in the healthcare environment. Oh, good idea. So I went to the University of Utah. They gave me some money to come and study there. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I shouldn't just, no offense to anyone here in the room, I shouldn't just do this by sitting in the classroom. I should actually immerse myself in the hospital. And so through connections, I was able to go to the hospital. And I started as a new graduate student going to the hospital an hour a day. And then after two weeks, it was three hours a day. And after about three months, it was eight hours a day because I could just do my work and not go to class and do my work and still turn in, but I could actually immerse myself. And after I was there for six or seven months, people started to say, why are you still here? Hey, by the way, we got this situation going on. What do you think about it? And that's how I started to realize that I got to pay attention to what's actually happening, not what I read in the books, but what people are experiencing. And that's how I got into it, completely by accident. Thank you. Yes. Hi, my name is Ellie, and my question for you is, I know like at the beginning of your lecture you said let's put like politics aside. However, I feel like when it comes to someone's identity, we can't put aside our identities, mm -hmm. especially when we're intersectional um, people. Um, so for my question for you is, when it comes to ethics in the healthcare system, um, I guess specifically here in the U.S., have you ever had to confront like systemic racism or how you know like black women are always, kind of not always, but black women often go undiagnosed or they don't receive equal treatment. And especially um, also to PLC or marginalized communities, like have you personally as an ethical, I guess, clinician, so, yeah. have you ever had to address systemic racism? So it's, it's a great question, um, and in, in many ways, this will sound odd, that's not really the problem, it's worse. And the reason I say it's worse is that we, I, I tell stories, and you hear some of these stories, and you're gripped by these stories, but you know, if you work in the healthcare environment, these are a dime a dozen, this is every single day. And so people actually start to get immune to the power of some of these things. Because if you're working in the world of this clinical world, day in and day out, this is the norm. And so what happens is, as opposed to it being the way in which I see what you're framing in terms of these the sorts of um, systemic racism, anti-Semitism, the, the violence against uh, Asian Americans, like all of these gr grand things, it actually becomes about individuals. Oh, it's just another one of those, and then fill in the blank. And sometimes it doesn't matter if they come from a wealthy family or a poor family. If they come, if they're homeless, if they're black, if they're white, if they're brown, 
No, it's that, oh, yeah, it's just one more closed head trauma. Uh, they're going to be here. They don't have the right insurance. We can't place them. And then you start to see a kind of response to them, not as the individual who is in medical need, but as a kind, a kind that turns out to be a thorn in our, uh, I guess I should say, foot. And I think that's the bigger challenge. Now, there are absolutely some of the broader social issues that get into healthcare, but that a lot depends on the institution and how it sees itself. I'm very fortunate. I work at Cedar sinai which as a Jewish hospital, the very foundation of the hospital uh, 120 years ago, 121 years ago now, was because at the turn of the 20th century, if you were a Jew, you couldn't get care anywhere else. And if you were a Jewish physician and you ended up in L.A., you couldn't work anywhere else. So the, the very foundation of the hospital is to be open to take care of everyone no matter what. That's the culture within which even now, 120-plus years later, Cedar sinai functions. So I'm lucky that my institution is very sensitive to all the various ways in which people get marginalized in society and not to have that come into the hospital. The flip side, though, is just what I was saying, which is, but, yeah, it's just another one of those kind. And it's about the medical problem and how that might affect their placement, the amount of resources that are being used, hence meaning the amount of work that people have to do. And it's like, I got 20 other patients and this family's taking too much time. Those are the issues more than the, the broader social ones. But again, that's because I work in an institution that has worked really hard to have solid walls to prevent those kind of broader social issues from coming in. Um, after this one, we'll open it up to everybody. Hi, my name is Leah. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, in these meetings that you have with care teams, how do you structure your responses to their questions? Do you offer multiple perspectives? Do you offer your own personal advice based on previous experiences? I was just wondering. That, that is a great question, and... It's going to shock you. I do what I'm doing right now, literally, to you right now, which is I try to address the question that you've asked in the way that you've asked it so that it will help you be able to figure out what it is that you're actually asking, which normally has to do with some action that's going to follow. So my job is absolutely not to impose my view. As I said, I can't help but carry my view with me as you carry yours. I can make it explicit. So if there's something that I need to say that I realize it's coming from me, i got to say, look, well, here's what I think, and I can tell you, this is my view, not your view. Do you have something similar? What is it you're asking? Like, my job is to create the space to allow the people whose situation it is to actually speak their view. So I have to respond to what the question is. Thank you. Yes. Hi there. My name's Carrie. So could I just follow up on that? Um, could you take us through uh, how you were responsibly responsive in those two situations, the first one with the woman who was 
not sure if she should follow the interests of the, and the values of the doctor who are acting in her own interest, not in the interest of these parents, but we're looking at her, her as a patient who might turn septic. How did you help bring into conversation the, the competing values in that space? And then in the other scenario that you described, could you talk about how you brought into conversation, were responsibly responsive to the two different values, the value of the hospital, the hospitalist, not to, to see the, the child moved, I think that's what you were saying, not to see the child move from regular care to the ICU, put back on a ventilator, uh, to then go to uh, the um, hyperbaric chamber and possibly go through all this treatment at great cost to institutions, um, insurance, for probably, you know, unfortunately, I'm guessing, little value. How did you bring these uh, values in those two contexts into conversation? Great, great question. I'm going to start with the second one. So my job in trying to address the needs of the people in that room, which then I only learn about afterwards in the hallway, is not to convince them that they should not be doing this. It's actually to try to create, as I said in response to this question, to create the space to find out. So, okay, I get how when you say it, we should take this patient who doesn't have a need to go to the ICU back to the ICU. A patient who doesn't have a need to be on a ventilator, we should put back on the ventilator. We should keep the patient in the hospital for a couple extra weeks so that we can transition him back to or onto a home ventilator, train the parents. Like, as I speak it, it sounds like this is a bad idea. No one should support this. That's not what I do. It's actually to try to create now, okay, if when this ICU physician is telling me, and now I get it, it's actually to try to get everyone back together and say, we actually need to put this up on the table and talk explicitly. Because maybe the, look, institutions are institutions, and there's all sorts of rules, and all rules bend. You don't break them, but they bend. And anybody here who is part of an institution knows that. So it's a matter of, can we actually talk directly and explicitly? The people who now are facing this, what does this actually mean? Is this something you could do? Is there ever? So I get to be the one who asks the questions aloud. That's what I do. So how do I respond in a responsive way? It's once I see that part of what's at issue is that it's about, they're not sure if they can actually speak this to their colleagues so I speak it to their colleagues to find out that, in fact, they're all thinking it, but no one is speaking it because of the fear that if you say such a thing aloud, it's like you're saying, oh, we should go rob the bank. Nobody goes and says publicly, hey, we're going to rob the bank next week. It has that kind of feel. But actually, it's a processing. They're trying to think, is there anything we can do to help this family? And where is our limit? Where is that bound? And that means if there's a... a economic concern, we need to actually get the economic people. I don't do that, but I at least say we need to talk to them. What's insurance doing right now? Are they paying for all of this? Has anyone checked? Is there a limit? So that's the way in which I respond in a responsive way. It's that I become the occasion to create the opening to speak aloud what is being thought. And then to make sure that in a safe space, people can actually intelligently entertain the possibility. And then if it turns out that this doesn't make sense, 
there is a collective wisdom about it as opposed to me coming in because I have a badge that I normally wear right here that says ethics that somehow I have the power to say this is no good because it's actually about us as a community because we don't think about it this way but like you all as a class you all as a university you're a moral community you work together you share in certain types of values and commitments the hospital is the same way so I become the point that can create the space to have the key stakeholders talk directly and explicitly. Now, in this particular case, it turned out that the collective wisdom was, you know, it just, there's, we can't think of any way that we could possibly justify this. And they really were thinking, because it's like they wanted to help this family. And just so you know, and this individual did not die. This little boy is still alive, has never recovered anything. But because of various funding sources and all, they have adequate super care. And like, unfortunately, or depending on how you look at it, fortunately, it's all a matter of what you want to see as your values. This little boy is growing. He will never function in the world. But... There's a son, there's a family, there's a community. Is that good? The resource question is the question we all have to actually talk about. No one of us gets to decide that because it's actually the resource question is about how do we as a society decide. And happens all the time. In, and people use this argument. They'll say for that little boy, if, if this happened to Theo and he was in England, he would be dead. And that's absolutely true. Because England distributes its healthcare resources in a different way than the United States. Is it better or worse? It's different. There's pluses and minuses. My daughter, who spent 10 years in Germany, she went there for graduate school, and she went there actually as an undergraduate to do semester abroad, fell in love, and so soon as she graduated from UC Santa Cruz, she found a way to go to graduate school there and stayed there for a decade. When she was sledding in the Alps, because that's a good idea, on New Year's Eve, where you stop halfway down on your sled at the bar, that's a good idea, yes. So she had the sled wreckage that left her with a mangled wrist. And you know what? It cost her 30 euros for the surgery, the plate implant, the physical therapy, 30 euros. Why? Because Germany has a particular kind of socialized medicine and she was covered because that's how they choose to do it. They also spend a lot more in terms of um, GMP on healthcare than we do. Is that better or is it worse? It also is not as aesthetically pleasing as she would have had that surgery done here. She has a pretty nasty looking scar. Better or worse? Those are social questions we all have to participate as citizens. So my job in this particular case was to respond to what was at stake for those healthcare providers so they could actually talk explicitly and directly with one another. For the first one, it was the same sort of thing. The only thing that was different is that I was scheduled to talk with Mrs. H. Two hours before I was scheduled to talk with her, she spontaneously aborted. Nobody, it was done, it happened. So she didn't really have much of a choice after all, because her body expelled 
the fetus. But what I was planning on doing was to be able to sit with her and the surrogates and to try to give them that opportunity to, what were they thinking about? Because again, what would it mean if you know that this woman's life is at risk and not in the usual way the pregnancy carries a risk and all that? It's like she, she's at a real risk of getting septic. Like, and what are you thinking that you might for a moment think, no, don't do this abortion? And I have to figure out in the same way as your question is asked, how can I ask that without it having an implication of you shouldn't be thinking that? And that's the trick of this kind of work, is trying to find ways to ask questions so that they actually are questions, because we all, unfortunately, are very skilled at asking questions that are really assertions. You thought, what? That's not a question. That's an assertion. You shouldn't have thought that. So part of my job is to try to figure out how to create the opportunity for people to speak clearly and directly about what matters. Long-winded answer. Um, this might be the last question, depending on how long we go. I apologize in advance if I get a bit long-winded. I'm Charlie Stoller. I'm a retired professor of surgery and pediatrics from Columbia University. And in that capacity, I was a chair of the ethics committee and the director of the Center for Fetal Intervention and Neonatal Surgery. So I've been in these trenches a long time. So a couple things. Number one, you may need to explain to this audience who the Grateful Dead were, but not all know. <laughs> they don't know that. I agree, Greg. Thank you. Uh, number two, um, I'm delighted to see a philosopher in a department of surgery, which is totally against our stereotype. So I congratulate the wisdom of uh, Bruce Gewertz and your department of surgery and having you intimately involved in their uh, activities. Um, these scenarios you described, I've been there. And it's that experience informs my views on this. I've worked with Professor Jarrett for a number of years now when he teaches medical ethics. It's my privilege to talk about what goes on at ground zero. And that's largely what you're talking about, is what, how do you actually operationalize ethical concepts? One of the hardest things that, one of the hardest things to understand is learning to be comfortable saying, I don't know. And I've always said one of the hallmark of a mature uh, healthcare provider, not necessarily a doctor, is being comfortable saying, I don't know, and being okay with that. Because uh, informed uh, consumers, parents in my case, get it. They get it. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about. I always remind people that uh, the word doctor is a Latin verb for to teach. It has nothing to do with relieving human suffering. And that's what we do. We teach. Yes, we have you know, unintentional bias. Our biases do enter into the teaching because we are trying to guide families to a constructive outcome. But that, that's what we do. I do have a question. Um, I'm looking at the title of your talk, and I'm wondering why is it not titled, How Does Clinical Practice in uh, Ground Ethics? Why is it not turned upside down? That's, that, that's a great question. Um, Two things. One, titles are created because bureaucracies demand them. And sometimes they want titles that are shorter than what you send them. So I can tell you that I had a different title, and I had to figure out how to get it to fit, you know, for what the demands are. You call that the dusty yes. Um, 
Your, your question is a really good one because it's – the language works in a way that you have to put something first in order, and yet it, it's a false order. I, I don't know if there is a preferred way – that it should be grounding clinical practice in ethics or grounding ethics in clinical practice because actually they're deeply intertwined. And so it becomes a matter of where you want to put your emphasis for the sake of trying to generate some thinking and conversation. And seriously, the book that I put up there by Medard Boss is worth the read because part of what he argues is that the issue of body in space or space embodied. And it, by thinking about it differently in terms of the order, the emphasis helps you see things and think then differently. So I put it this way because... I wanted to take advantage of the fact that many people think about ethics as grounded in theory as opposed to ethics grounded in practice. So it's a way of emphasizing. But I could easily have put it the other way. I'm not committed. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.